Lord again this morning. <clears throat> you know, we live in a country and in a culture where there is a lot of emphasis put on our personal freedom and on our individual rights. Uh, you know, if there's anything that's core to American values, I would say that it probably could be articulated in that way. In fact, the Declaration of Independence states this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's probably not any wonder that we emphasize personal and individual rights and liberty. During World War II, Norman Rockwell painted depictions of the four freedoms in the United States as articulated by a speech by President Roosevelt in 1941. The freedom of speech, the freedom of worship, the freedom from want, and the freedom from fear. Now the concept of personal or individual rights of Americans is very deeply ingrained within every one of us, whether we want to admit it or not. In fact, I would say that freedom is nearly synonymous with the word America. Um, our freedom and our rights are held in utmost esteem. And I'm going to challenge some of those deep-held cultural beliefs this morning. You know, Christians aren't promised an easy life. And I would ask you, do we really have unalienable rights? Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness sounds good, sounds like music to our ears, and it epitomizes the American dream. But is it biblical? Is that really biblical? And church history certainly gives no promise that we deserve or will always have the freedom of speech or to worship as we please. Christians aren't promised a life free of poverty or free from the fear of war. But rather, Scripture teaches us that Christians are expected to give up and to sacrifice their individual freedoms and rights for the sake of the gospel and their brothers and sisters in the local church. And it, it struck me, uh, we're going to be continuing our journey in through 1 Corinthians, and we're going to see what the Apostle Paul has to say about our personal freedoms. And uh, I've entitled this morning's message, Christian Freedom and Rights. Our Sunday school lesson, both today as well as the last couple of Sundays, goes right along this line. It's not the, it's not the same thing, it's, but it's talking about the same types of issues from a different perspective from the perspective of Paul writing to a church in addressing these type of particular issues that they face within that church. Chapters 8 through 10 in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses the issue of Christian liberty. And so there's several dimensions that he covers, but, uh, and he comes at it from several different angles, but that's what he is covering and, and discussing. And as indicated in the first verse of chapter 8, this was another question that apparently was raised to Paul by the Christian believers requesting his input. Like, what do we do about this? And as with the previous question on singleness and marriage, 
Paul explains that the correct response is not always going to be the same in every situation. In other words, it depends. It's, it's not just a straightforward right or wrong answer, but there's, uh, there are several ways of considering this. Food offered to idols was a significant issue in the early church. It was addressed, actually, or it was, it was included in the issue that was addressed in Acts 15 in the Council of Jerusalem. And at that point, the church agreed that uh, they should abstain from food being offered to idols. And that was in Jerusalem earlier, several year, number of years prior to this account in 1 Corinthians. Corinth was a city with many pagan temples to many different deities. Um, and worship at these temples often included offering both food as a form of worship as well as purchasing or eating food that was sacrificed there in order to obtain a blessing from this particular deity, whatever god they were worshiping. So when going to the market for food, you know, some of it was kosher, you might say, or acceptable to these pagan gods, but some other food was not. And so these pagan uh, idolaters would choose which food they want to eat because some of it had been blessed by the God that they were serving. And so this distinction or designation was especially critical to many people that were caught up in this pagan worship. And so when these dedicated pagan worshipers became believers, followers of Christ, a lot of them had a hard time separating the, the food from the act of worship itself. It felt like, I've done this all my life, how can I, all of a sudden now this food is okay, when before it was a part of my worship to God. The idea of, you know, to a lot of Jews, and certainly, and even other believers, Christians, the thought of actually worshiping an idol seemed absurd. I mean, and it is. An idol is nothing. They knew that the idol was nothing more than fiction. But those that grew up believing this stuff, even though it was false, had a lot more difficult time separating that, uh, making that distinction between worship and the food that was sacrificed to these idols as, as somehow meaningful. Now, that all seems a bit foreign to us. Um, so I tried to think about in terms of today's culture and a few examples that might help us to identify a bit better what the church was dealing with. And none of these examples are really uh, just excellent examples, I would say, but I think it gives us a flavor of what we're thinking about. We have a Buddhist temple just half a mile across the field here. They have festivals several times a year. There's usually one coming up around July 4th. There's a big festival up there for several days. So what if a Buddhist came over here and invited our church to attend their festival? What should we do? Come for the food. Or they're in a Manassas, an abortion clinic, offers free barbecue meals outside their doors. 
is it okay to get a free barbecue meal? Or an adult entertainment bar or restaurant offers menu items at steeply discounted prices, which includes outdoor seating and to-go orders. Is it okay to do something like that? Or any of those above items, someone brings one of those dishes to a fellowship meal announcing its origin, where it came from. Or you receive an invitation to attend an event featuring celebrities that are promoting a controversial movie or TV show. The U.S. Armed Forces Day celebrates with an air show that's open to the public featuring the Blue Angels and Thunderbirds. And then maybe more practically or more, what's our response to wearing masks or getting vaccine for COVID-19? I mean, these are all things that I believe every one of us here would have varying degrees of comfort or discomfort with each one of these. Food offered to idols might seem like a relative minor issue today, but it really was quite a significant issue to the Corinthian believers at that time and what they were facing as a church. So let's uh, look at this together. Why don't we stand together as we read chapter 8. From the ESV, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, from, for whom I'm sorry, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as, really, as food really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. But if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in, in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother whom, for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You may be seated. <clears throat> I'm not going to go through here just verse by verse, but I want to cover three main sections here that I see in chapter 8, and then we're also going to look at chapter 9. <clears throat> A bit. The first 
few verses here, Paul introduces the subject and says, this is something that you asked about. And uh, he's, it makes a very obvious statement that all of us have some degree of knowledge. We know something about this. Um, and knowledge, as you recall, is very important to the Corinthians. Back in chapter 2, there was a lot of emphasis on knowledge and uh, the importance of that. And I would say that, you know, we all have some idea about this. In today's vernacular, we ha all have our own opinions and perspectives on issues like this based on our life experience. And so the first point that I want us to think about is that we should consider our attitude, consider your attitude. <clears throat> and that's what he's addressing in these first three verses. These chapters are dealing with, chapters 8 through 10, with matters of varying shades of gray. These are not black and white issues, not clearly defined theological concepts or principles, but it's, it's those things that are neither right nor wrong in and of themselves. And regarding those kinds of issues, I think verses three, 1 through 3 could be summarized with this. If anyone thinks he has all the answers, he still has a lot to learn is the essence of what he is saying here in, in verse 2, really. If anyone imagines he knows something, yet he does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, don't assume that you know everything there is to know about the issue at hand. Our perceived knowledge is simply incomplete and inadequate to always get it right. At, but our attitude is more important than what we even than even the thing that we think we know something about. Our at, an attitude of love and appreciation for our brothers and sisters is more beneficial, more upbuilding than debating about and demanding others to agree with what we believe to be true. Just because we know something does not mean it should be imposed on or with those that disagree or that we disagree with the perspective of others that think differently. And it, what Paul is getting at here is a willingness to set aside and give up our own opinions and perspectives for the sake of better relationships. Uh, and that is the best way that we can show love both to God as well as to others. And that's that's a high call. It's not easy for any of us to do this. In the next number of verses, the main part of this chapter, I would say there's, he's telling us that we need to consider our brother and sister. First of all, what's our attitude? Check our attitude. What about my brother or sister? Verses 4 through 6, Paul makes a very clear case that idols are nothing. They literally mean nothing. They are just fabrications. They are imaginations. They hold no power. They are no deity. They're simply imaginary. He affirms that there's only one God. And it's interesting how he makes the distinction even between God the Father and God the Son. For the Father, he says, from whom are, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and then basically repeating that 
with the word through for Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. But certainly equating or, uh, or um, recognizing both the Father and the Son as deity and the only God. There is no other God. Therefore, food sacrificed to idols really is nothing. However, in verse 7, he says, however, even though that's the case, you need to think about this. Paul calls the Corinthian believers to graciously give consideration and respect to those that are less mature, less experienced, and have a more sensitive conscience about such things than what they themselves do. Notice the word weak is used several times through here. Paul uses weak only to describe some of these believers. Now, what I noticed as I was studying this is the word strong is not used. So he's not making a contrast between weak and strong. But he does characterize some of these as weak. But, uh, you know, so the ones that hold a different perspective are not necessarily strong. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that some of these that do hold these uh, are sensitive conscience are weak. But I believe what he's really getting at here is not strong versus weak, but rather mature versus immature. There's different ways that we can relate to these types of situations. It's about cultivating the most mature response in a given situation. You know, in any, many ways, a disrespectful approach to our brothers and sisters' differing opinion shows a greater level of immaturity and weakness than necessarily the thing itself. So if we're not sensitive to how others are feeling and how we respond to that may actually reveal more about ourselves than what we'd like to think, even though we maybe consider ourselves strong, by not reacting in a respectful way, we're really showing ourselves as immature, if not weak. Those offended by eating food offered to idols are often characterized as legalistic. And, and rightfully so. But remember in chapter 5, there were Corinthian believers that were guilty of bl endorsing blatant immorality as okay in the name of Christian liberty. So there was, there was both extremes within the Corinthian church. Um, and especially in today's permissive cultural environment and even within many churches, Sin is too often both accepted and embraced or at least overlooked in the name of freedom and grace. That is not what Paul is getting at here in any way. And we need to be aware that there is an immaturity or a weakness at both ends of these spectrums of overlooking something as sin as well as the legalistic and of requiring things that are not required. And so there's, there's a, a spectrum here of legalism and permissiveness. Paul is calling, in this passage, all believers to be more mature. And I think you could summarize that by consider others above yourselves. Your perspective is not the only way to look at an issue, 
love those with differing opinions and as a way of understanding, uh, giving understanding and sensitivity to their conscience. But I do want to emphasize, Christians do have, in this context, the freedom in Christ to eat the food offered to idols. Paul is not, he's not challenging that. It's very clear on there. There, there is nothing wrong with it. However, we're also called to make sure that this freedom does not confuse or offend a brother or sister who sees it differently. Paul is not asking that we change our minds about whether it's okay or not, but he does call us to intentionally and voluntarily give up our freedom in order to strengthen and build up our brothers and sisters around us. And I see that's especially true within the local congregation. Now, to many, this seems almost irrational or ridiculous. It's their problem that they're weak and that they don't understand. They're, this is nothing. Why is it our problem? You know, I have heard it described, and I probably have been guilty of this myself, that this type of scenario, is it not catering to the weak or giving the weak power over us? And I can understand the logic of that, but by reacting this way, I think that we're exposing our own immaturity and weakness by emphasizing what we know over walking with those that see it differently in grace and, and trying to help them along the way. In many ways, our level of maturity is revealed by our willingness to give up our deserved freedoms out of love and deference for those with differing perspectives. And that's true from either end of the spectrum. That's not limited to one way, but it's our willingness to give up. <clears throat> our first concern should be whether my actions in a particular situation will enable or facilitate my brother and sister to draw closer to Christ, or will my actions potentially drive them away from Christ and maybe move them away from, from Christ. That's what we need to be careful about. And in verse 9, he summarizes this in a very real way. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. It's not that it's wrong, but what is going to be the most beneficial to this brother or sister? <clears throat> Ray Steadman, in his commentary on 1st and 2nd Corinthians says this, <clears throat> uses this example, a young Christian once said to me, I don't like to be told I can't drink or dance just because it might offend somebody else's conscience. That sounds like legalism to me. I said, I can certainly, I can identify with that. Like you, I don't like to be told what I can or cannot do just because it may offend someone else. But the Bible calls that rebellious part of me the flesh. It's the enemy within each of us that seeks to destroy our effectiveness for God. If we want God to use us to reach others, we need to love him enough to deny our flesh and limit our liberty. And so it's not a matter of whether a thing is right or wrong, but it's whether we're willing to give that up for the sake of others for the love of Christ.
And then the third aspect of this chapter that I want us to do is that we consider Christ. Paul concludes the last two verses of this with that what well, he says, when we insist basically on our freedom and in the process cause a brother or a sister to stumble or not grow closer to Christ, we have actually sinned. Even though the thing that we did is not sin, if we cause someone else to stumble or to grow away from Christ, we have sinned. And we've sinned both against our brother and sister, and we've sinned against Christ. And so in the end, our willingness or unwillingness to relinquish our freedoms on a neutral matter can become sin. It's kind of a shocker when you think about that. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. The thing itself is not sin, but our attitude about demanding our own freedom and our own lack of love or regard, concern for our brother or sister is what is the sin. And then Paul goes on and says that he would personally rather become a vegetarian for the sake of other believers. What a commitment. He says, therefore, goes on in verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That's how committed Paul was to upholding this. It's not that there was anything wrong with eating the meat. He made that very clear. But at the same time, he's willing to become a vegetarian in order to keep others from stumbling. That was an incredible challenge to me. Am I willing to lay down, to sacrifice a legitimate right I have for the sake of my brother or sister, because I care more about them than I do my own understanding about the issue. What would Jesus do, have me do in a situation like that? What is going to most help my brother or sister grow closer to God? We all have opportunities along the way to either cling to our Christian freedoms and rights, or surrender them, surrender these legitimate rights willingly for the sake of building up our brothers and sisters, strengthening their faith and drawing them closer to God. It's a profound call that Paul has here and what he's asking of the Corinthians there as well as for each one of us. Then Paul shifts away from the food offered to idols and continues in chapter 9 with a very personal example of him voluntarily giving up his rights for something that he deserved and earned. So he's calling the Corinthians to do something in relation to the food offered to idols, but then he gives a personal example of himself. And so we're going to go right on into chapter 9 here. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. <clears throat> Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord, seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am an apostle, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for the 
for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife and to do as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen that God is concerned. Does he not? Certainly speak for our sake, for it is written for our sake, because a plowman should plow in hope, and the thrasher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it, not, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim to you, do not we even more? And I'm going to stop there. <clears throat> so here... Paul completely shifts the focus by asking a whole bunch of questions. And I've entitled this section, Paul's Rights Established. Um, you know, some commentators suggest that Paul is defending his apostleship in the first part of this to the uh, Corinthians. However, it seems likely the Corinthians have clearly accepted his apostleship. So I don't think that that's what he's doing, but I Rather, he's asking these questions rhetorically. Uh, the answers are obvious. More than a dozen questions in these 12 verses covering several different aspects. So in the first two verses, Paul is reaffirming the facts that everyone in the Corinthian church would know and agree with. They know that he's free. He's not a slave. They know that he's an apostle. And so he's just laying that out there. And and they're also fully aware that he's given up some of his rights as he could have demanded because of the fact that he was free and that he was an apostle, but he didn't, he doesn't do that. And he's not asking them to do anything he himself hasn't been willing to do. So he's laying out some of these rights that he has, recognizing that he's laid down some of these for himself. He's not asking anything of the Corinthian believers from chapter 8 regarding food offered idols that he's not been willing to do himself. Verses 3 through 6, <clears throat> Paul starts addressing the question of compensation for pastors and those serving in the church, um, those that are preaching the gospel. Basically, the question that he is answering rhetorically with these questions is, should ministers be financially supported by their congregation? And Paul makes a case here quite strongly that the rights of a minister of the gospel is to earn a living in the ministry. He has the right to basic requirements of life. We see this in verses um, 4, 5, Six, he has the right to marry. And then he also says in verse eight, well, no, in verse uh, six, that, you know, he has a right to not to have another primary job to make a living. 
And then Paul continues by using various examples that we see here. You know, soldiers aren't expected to pay for their own support. A farmer's allowed to enjoy the bounty of his own crops that he works. A dairyman's entitled to milk that is produced by his livestock. Why should a minister, why should a pastor be treated any differently? No one should be expected to work without reaping the rewards of that work. And he even says um, in verse 11, um, the material aspects of that. <clears throat> and then going on, um, well, down in verse 9, I believe it is, Paul cites an Old Testament passage from the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 25.4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. And that may seem kind of out of context, but really what that is, it's a command from God on, how, on the humane treatment of animals. So they would use oxen to thrash their wheat. They would have them walk around on the, um, and the wheat would fall down through in the cracks, if I understand it correctly, like in the bottom, and, and that's how they would collect the wheat. Well, basically they're saying, don't tie the oxen's mouth shut when he's doing that. Rather, let him eat some of that while he's working. I mean, he's doing the work. Let him go ahead and eat some of that. And so while um, Paul is using this as a metaphor to describe the humane treatment of people, and in specifically here, ministers of the gospel. And so it is clear from these verses that the principle that no one should be expected to work without reaping the benefits of his work. And Paul has made a rather compelling case here in these first 12 verses for his rights to be financially supported as a minister of the gospel. And one could assume at the conclusion of this that he's about to tell the Corinthians what they should do to financially support him. But he doesn't. Instead, he abruptly changes his tune in the middle of verse 12. Let's uh, keep reading here, verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything than, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in, their sacrificial, in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded the, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, what, that gives me no ground for boasting. But for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel." For if I do this of my own will, I will have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, 
though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. <clears throat> so after emphasizing the legitimate rights that he has and the responsibility of the Corinthian church, he states that he is voluntarily relinquishing those very rights. These rights dated back to the Levitical laws when the Levites were supported by the sacrifices and the offerings brought by the Jews. Let me see that in verse 13. When they brought these tithes and offerings, those gifts were used as to pay or to support the priests and the Levites that worked in the tabernacle and the temple. But Paul voluntarily gave up that right because he personally did not want anything to get in the way of the gospel message. In fact, he says he would rather die than give up that right. So what a paradox. And I mean, this is a paraphrase if you will, I would rather die than let you take away my right to give up my rights. The greatest right I have is the right to give up my rights. That's, that's a mouthful. But, I mean, that's the way Paul understood it, is that, you know, yes, these are legitimate rights, but one of the greatest rights I have is that I don't have to I don't have to live out or express all the rights that I have, but I can lay those down voluntarily. I feel like I'd be remiss not to just say a little bit something more about this, and I'm not uh, making a statement here more than just kind of a description. You know, the position of our church and similar churches is not to financially support its ministers, other than compensation for some time off of work, reimbursement for actual expenses and occasional gift. And I am grateful for that. I will say that in light of these types of scriptures, so I found it always a bit peculiar that when a minister serves on the mission field, he's financially supported so he can dedicate himself to, fully to the work of a mission, but then when he comes to his home congregation, he's expected to work elsewhere to support himself and his family, and the church gets the leftover time and energy. Um, you know, is the established church or the surrounding community at home of less value or importance than that of a mission somewhere else? And I'm not saying it's wrong how our churches have, done, have chosen to handle this. At the same time, I would also say that there is not an option of having this right. The pastors have not given the option of this right even in our churches as well. And so that's, I just wanted to put that out there. I'm not presenting something here that I'm trying to make a case for something, but trying to understand what Paul is articulating and what he is uh, outlining as rights. <clears throat> but then Paul concludes this section, the last several verses, with another paradox, and basically that he is voluntarily making himself a slave 
after he starts this chapter with, am I not free? He's clearly a free man, but he voluntarily is making him a slave. And rather than clinging to and demanding his own rights, regardless what the situation is, he wants the priority to be on building the kingdom of God, whatever that takes. And he's willing to, there's a whole list of things in those last few verses. And he goes on, I'm willing to, um, how, how is it, I have become all things to all people that by all means some might be saved. I mean, he, he puts himself completely into this. I believe that for each one of us, this means if we practice this, that there's going to be ample opportunity to surrender our legitimate rights throughout this process. Are we willing to step up and relinquish what we really truly do deserve? Short story just before I wrap up here. H.A. Ironside retells a story of a picnic where everyone present was a Christian, including a young man who had been converted from Islam to Christ. A young lady was passing out sandwiches to people in the group, and she approached this young man and asked, would you like a ham sandwich or pork? Don't you have any beef sandwiches left? The young man replied, I'm sorry, they're all gone. Then I won't have a sandwich. Thanks anyway. The young woman said, I know you couldn't eat pork as a Muslim, but now that you're a Christian, you're free to eat any food you like. Listen to this response. <clears throat> I know I am free to eat pork, he said, but I'm also free not to eat it. I'm trying to be a witness to my family. They're all Muslims living in the Middle East. I visit them once a year, and I know that when I arrive, the first question my father will ask me is, have those infidels taught you to eat that filthy hog meat yet? If I say yes, father, I will be banished and no longer able to witness to my family. But if I say no pork has ever passed my lips, then I will continue to have a relationship with my family, and I can tell them of the joy that I found in Jesus Christ. So I choose not to eat because of my love for my family and my love for Jesus Christ. And I think that exemplifies the heart of what Paul is trying to communicate in these two chapters. <clears throat> the unalienable rights in the Declaration of Independence cannot be claimed by believers. And the freedoms of speech and worship and the freedom from want and fear cannot be guaranteed to anyone. But believers are free in Christ, free to exercise their freedom, also free to relinquish those freedoms for the sake of love of those around us. So I urge you this morning, consider your own attitude, consider your brother and sister, Consider Christ when it comes to these matters. <clears throat> we will all choose at some point continuously whether we cling to our individual freedom and rights or whether we surrender those freedom and rights to build up or encourage more people for Christ. And my challenge to you is let's use our Christian freedom and rights to maximize the kingdom of God and not pursue our own um, freedoms and rights. Let's stand together for a benediction. Father, thank you so much for 
the gift of Jesus, the freedom that you give us in Christ to live in victory and to, to serve you. At the same time, Lord, this morning, I just pray that you would convict each one of us when we cling to these rights, these freedoms that we actually do have at the expense of a brother or sister who may be offended or um, not grow closer to you because of our selfish actions. Just ask that you would work in our lives. Pray that we'd be willing to relinquish any of those rights for the sake of your kingdom and those around us. Be with us as we go from here. I ask that you would direct our ways, guide and direct us, make us lights as we live our lives throughout the coming week. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.